Welcome to the HCI Family of Podcasts, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We share our own original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. Join us for practitioner-oriented content around all things leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with the HCI family of podcasts. Thomas Sterner, welcome to the conversation today. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from Delaware. I'm south of Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about your recent book, It's Just a Thought, Emotional Freedom Through Deliberate Thinking. I think this has a lot of practical applications for us in various aspects of our lives. So we'll talk about that generally, but we'll also talk about this in relation to the workplace and working in teams and trying to be collaborative and whatnot, because there's a lot of thoughts that get in the way of all of that happening effectively uh, in the workplace. So I think this will be a, a really fun conversation. As we get started, I wanted to share Tom's bio with everybody. Thomas M. Sterner is CEO of Practicing Mind Institute and is an in-demand speaker and coach working with high-performance industry groups and individuals, including athletes, to help them operate effectively in high-stress situations and experience new levels of mastery. Prior to writing the best-selling the practicing mind. He studied Eastern and Western philosophy and modern sports psychology and trained as a jazz pianist. And he lives in Delaware. Uh, what a fascinating background. Uh, again, thank you for joining me. Anything you would like to highlight by way of your background or personal context before we dive on in? Well, the, the one thing I would say is, you know, as um, for 25 years, I was a high level concert piano technician. And the one thing, the one value of that in terms of what I do is that uh, piano work is extremely tedious and mm -hmm. repetitious because there's 88 notes. So everything mm -hmm. you do on the piano, you got to do at least 88 times. And then, you know, when you get, if you're just doing a tuning on the piano, you have about 235 tuning pins that have to be touched at least once. So the value of that for me was in trying to find out how to train my mind to be on a task for hours and hours because I would uh, at a very high level because I was working for the best musicians in the world on a daily basis and to stay fully engaged in the process and not uh, and not feel like, oh, my gosh, I can't stand this. You know, when is it going to be done? And I mean, actually to enjoy the process of of doing that. So it allowed me to have an, a really good incubator to work mm -hmm. on all of the things that we'll talk about. Uh, that was, I think, one of the one of the unusual things about my background. That is super interesting. And I, we've all been there. We've, we've all been there when we're doing, you know, what some may seem as tedious tasks and your mind drifts and you're not really paying attention. Um, of course, that can have all sorts of bad results uh, if you're doing something as precise and delicate as tuning a piano or working on a piece of machinery in a factory or whatever, like accidents happen, um, quality goes down, et cetera. So, I mean, there's there's practical reasons for why that's um, a challenging thing uh, in the workplace. Uh, and to be able to to have that discipline, I think, is something that uh, is is a really nicely developed skill. Um, so, well, it was I, also I'm... a stressful. It was also a stressful environment because you weren't just tuning the piano, but you were um, you were setting up the action mechanism, the keyboard mechanism, and what 
what your your listeners have to understand is at that level, if everything is perfect, the performer is good enough that the instrument will fail. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they will outplay the instrument. So, and they don't, they're not very happy about that when it happens, you know, so, um, and it also affects the performance and everything. So, like I said, it was, you had to do your highest level best work every time. And so because of that, you know, to be able to get into a place where uh, you weren't thinking like, I just can't wait to get done this so I can go be someplace else. It, it was, it was really good training and it was a long time. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't you start by just really telling us about the why behind this book, uh, why this book, why now books are a labor of love. They take a lot of time and attention and energy. Um, so yeah, why this book, why now? Well, I originally wrote The Practicing Mind in the early 90s. It wasn't published uh, until 2005, and that's because I was in the piano uh, technical business. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to get somebody to look at me, and nobody knew who I was, and they certainly didn't know what the book was about, and they didn't care. Mm -hmm. So I ended up publishing it myself. It eventually, after about two years, it became enormously successful and was taken over by New World Library. Um, and has continued to be um, very successful. And then uh, that's when I changed careers because I could mm -hmm. afford to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I that freed me up to spend a lot more time on research. And I was talking about this on a daily basis to everybody from one-on-one -on -one clients to corporate clients, uh, CEOs, all the way down to teams within uh, um, corporations. Mm -hmm. So then I wrote Fully Engaged, which was kind of like a follow-up on that. I always looked at it as another seven chapters to the practicing mind. Mm -hmm. It's just a thought was really something different because much of the information that is in It's Just a Thought wasn't even around when I wrote mm -hmm. The Practicing Mind. We have made such tremendous strides in understanding through, you know, not just sports psychology, but neuroscience and everything. We really... Right. Uh, we can measure thought, you know, electromagnetic energy and everything. We know when you think there is something that actually goes out of you, like, um, we know this. It's not, um, we also really have a good understanding of uh, the subconscious mind and how it works. And so I really began to see that our thoughts are not as private as we as we once thought that they were. Um, the thoughts are the energy is going out, the emotional energy that's in it is going outside of us. Our body is has a neurosystem in the heart through heart math that is set up to read that information and understand it. And there's all this stuff that's going on around us and is impacting us and that we're impacting it. Um, and if you don't know that, you become a victim of it. You know, it's a it's a system that is running 24-7, and you can either use the system or be used by the system. So it was really, really fascinating, you know, to me, and I just dove into it farther and farther and continue to. And that was when I realized that, look, you know, you um, freedom comes through deliberate thinking. And most of the time, we are not deliberate thinking. We're being mm -hmm. thought. And so we need to understand what it feels like to be thought versus what it feels like to be the thinker of the thought, and then be able to master that process so that we're in control of what we're experiencing during the day. Yeah, uh, deliberate thinking. The opposite of that is really what we end up doing a lot of times, the automated thinking um, that just starts to happen. It's why you can get in your car and drive, and then all of a sudden... 10, 15, 20 minutes later, you end up somewhere and you don't even remember how you got there, right? We just have so much kind of rote muscle memory, but also just uh, automated thinking where we just naturally do things without, you know, and our mind wanders. Um, and, and there's a time and a place for mind wandering, don't get me wrong. Um, but 
tell us more about this, the contrast between automated thinking and this deliberative thinking that you're just referring to? Well, if you look at the, the subconscious, the, the subconscious is a very elegant recording system, and it's not uh, creative. It doesn't have a sense of humor. It's not critical. <laughs> uh, what it does is it watches how a situation makes you feel. It's how, you, how it makes you feel. It doesn't judge how it makes you feel. It just correlates the two. And so if a situation happens and it makes you upset, the subconscious is always trying to make you happy. So what it does is it says, oh, okay, this is how he or she wants to feel when this situation or one similar to it arises. And so it writes a program for it and it stores it on the hard drive. And then the next time something like that happens, it plays it. And after several rot um, rotations of this, it habitualizes it. And the reason, you know, we have habits, you know, habits are extremely effective from a cognitive level. In other words, mm -hmm. they're sort of like, um, they don't take any RAM up because they're automated and there's no decision making in them. They just something, a trigger happens and they fire off and then, you know, you, you repeat the habit. So that's not deliberate thinking. And I, a story I've told many times was I was working with a CEO one time and we were having this conversation and he, he said, um, I don't think I buy that. I think that, you know, I'm actually making my choices to think the way that I'm thinking uh, during the day. And so to make a point to him, I said, I said, um, did I ask you to talk? I don't think I asked you to talk. I think you need to sit there and shut up until I tell you to talk. Well, of course, he became very <laughs> insulted. And I said, you see that? I said, you did not make a choice to feel what you're feeling right now, because I don't think you're very comfortable. If you had the choice, you would choose not to react that way. In fact, you would probably choose uh, a scenario where this guy's not going to touch my inner peace. Um, mm -hmm. And so he he was like, you know, he laughed about it and he just said, thank you for the awakening. You know, he said, I get what you're saying now. And I said, well, that's where, you know, our neuroscience says that we spend 95% of our time in our day, basically things happening out in front of us and we're just running programs and we're not actually the thinker of the thought. We're basically being, our thoughts are being dictated to us. So we're not thinking deliberately. A deliberate thought is, has decision-making um, and conscious intention behind it. You know, I, when this situation happens, this is how I am going to act. Um, and that is, that's freedom. If you don't have that, you're not free. You're basically just a puppet to whatever's going on around you. And most people, and that has, you know, that's for all situations, anxiety, you know, that uh, most people know now that the brain has a, has a negative bias because the brain is not designed, um, to make you happy or successful, it's designed to keep you alive. So because right. of that, it has a bias towards negativity because it looks at that as something that could harm you. So it is, has a tendency to go towards what could go wrong here. Um, and that's okay, but you're not your brain. Like you know, your brain is like your laptop. You should be using your laptop just to do things for you, not your laptop running you. So the brain is, you know, should be looked at in that regard instead of the brain being in control. It's doing what it's basically programmed for, but that doesn't mean that you can't override that and train it to be differently. Right. And so, we, you know, I, I talked to a, a child psychologist just the other day, and she was talking about how really it's in those toddler years, the first several years of life where so much of that programming happens, depending on the relationships you have, how you're taken care of. And a lot of that just automated, like how you respond in different situations is, is programmed 
really early on. Now, does that mean you're a victim to your, you know, circumstances early on in life? Well, no, but it does mean you may have to do the work to uncover trauma or, or the things that impacted you that way so that you can be more deliberate about reprogramming yourself to, to uncover those unconscious biases uh, and to, to be more aware of what's happening and why it's happening while it's happening to you. Um, that's a, a process that we all kind of go through. We unpack things. We try to better understand where we're coming from. You know, when, when I think about within an organizational setting, there's a lot of talk around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And part of that is, you know, unbiased unconscious bias training and just like trying to help people recognize what's going on in their head without them even really recognizing or knowing it um, so that you can choose something different, right? So you can say something different, act differently. So you can uh, eventually change the way you even respond to and feel about the things that trigger you perhaps in the moment. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, one of the things that I work with, with all my clients is what I call thought awareness training. You have to you have to experience there is a different feeling of being in your thoughts and being the noticer of your thoughts. There are two different yeah. perspectives. And in order to to change anything, John, you have to get to the point where being the noticer of your thought, the observer of your thoughts, who is really who you are, because when you're not the observer of your thoughts, you're being thought and you're just basically being obedient to habits. So. Um, you have to learn what it feels like. So you recognize that. And then when you recognize that, then what happens is you can do what you were just talking about. Then you have the privilege of choice. That doesn't mean that the choice is easy because right. you're pushing against habitual behavior that you've had your whole life. But you get the option. You get the, you get the, the option to make the choice. And then, you know, what we talk about is things like, you know, um, you know, I I'll may say to somebody, okay, when this situation arises and you be you get to where you can be the you live more in the observer of the thoughts, you know this situation is going to arise. So when it arises, if you could be anybody you wanted and react in it or re respond any way you want, um, what does that look like? And it, it, I always get, I don't know. And I, um, mm -hmm. you know, I said, well, if you don't know, you're not going to figure it out once the you're in the throes of the em emotional content of the habit. Like, so you need to have something that allows you, first of all, like a rescue mantra is what I call it. You know, something you say, like, this is when the fun starts, you know, something like that. As soon as you feel this, this something has happened and you recognize, you know, whenever that person walks in the room, I always get nervous. OK, so when that person walks in the room, you need something to shut down the habitual response of anxiety so you can get out ahead of it a little bit and then execute the new procedure. And so I tell people, let's, you know, let's come up with some sort of a rescue mantra so that you can say that, like, um, um, you're going down today. I don't care what it is, you know, whatever makes you feel empowered, that's what you do. You say that, and now you immediately go into whatever your response is going to be. And I, you know, I, many times I mention the fact that I'm a pilot and I have a pilot's license and this kind of procedure is drilled into pilots. In other words, if the engine quits, that's not when you get the manual out and figure out what to do. <laughs> like, you know, like when the engine quits, you have two choices. You can be um, removed and analytical, or you can scream all the way to the crash site. So, you know, basically, you know, if I have an electrical problem, here's, I'm going to do A, B, C. It's all written out, you know, A, B, C, and D. If I, have a, if I feel like there's a, a fuel starvation, if the engine just up and quits, if the engine runs rough, if communication goes away, all this stuff has a procedure for it. And so you practice that over and over and over again so that 
when it happens, you just instinctively go into it. And I can tell you it worked extremely well because when I was learning to fly and I had to solo for the first time, I was really fearful because I couldn't imagine taking this airplane off in three-dimensional space at a hundred miles an hour without the instructor sitting next to me. I just thought like, if something goes wrong, I'm, uh, that's the end of me. But what I found was that we had practiced the procedure so many times that it was really anticlimactic. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, push the throttle forward when you hit 65 knots, start to rotate, you know, climb to this altitude, your climb out VY angle was, um, will give you 74 knots of speed. All this stuff was just stuff that I'd done, you know, 200 times. And so I had to do three full circuits. Uh, and when I did them, I was like, this is like almost boring. Like this isn't not scary at all. And that's where you want to get. That's why when you look at Captain Sully landing the airplane on the uh, on the Hudson, plus he's a glider pilot and, you know, they only get one chance to land. I mean, you don't go around in a glider. So the, the point is, is that, you know, he had practiced this stuff over and over again. And if you ever listen to the recording of him on the, um, on that, the transcript of him on that call, I mean, the guy is basically just flatlined, you know, we, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. We can do this. Our only option is this. I mean, he's not like, oh my, you know, he's, his hair is right. on fire, you know? So this is where we want to live because there's happiness there and there's contentment there. And I think that you, whenever you feel in control, there's peace there, you know, like, um, and it's when you don't feel in control, that's where anxiety comes from. So uh, anytime you're anxious or fearful, the, the base emotion there is I'm not in control of this situation. And if you're not in control of how you're thinking, then you're not in control of how you're feeling. And if you're not in control of how you're feeling, you're very uncomfortable. So we talked a little bit about the conscious, unconscious, and subconscious aspects of our minds. Uh, I referred to earlier about sometimes when we get into the automated thinking mode or the habitual mode, you know, our mind is wandering. And, and sometimes it really is needed and healthy to, to kind of turn our mind off. Um, you know, that's why things like meditation can be such powerful practices. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, why does turning off your mind uh, work? Like, why is that so important? And how can we train ourselves to take a break from all all the constant pinging that's going on in our heads? Well, you know, when I work with people, I ask them, I tell them, look, I want 10 minutes of your day. You know, if you can't come up with that, you need to clear your schedule. You probably spend, you know, an hour and a half on your phone just doing this, looking at stuff that's not going to add anything to your life and probably is going to um, add anxiety like um, to your life. So, you know, it's very easy to practice, uh, to become more aware of your thoughts. And, you know, in a standard meditation practice, which could be either breath-based or phrase-based, is to sit quietly in a chair in a, in a manner, like with an erect back, you, you're basically looking at, you don't want your body to be a distraction, you know, when you do this and you don't, um, and you want to be able to sit comfortably for, for 10 minutes without like your hip bothering you or something like that. So, right. uh, and you also don't want to fall asleep. So, um, and then, you know, you close your eyes. It's good to, if you think of um, your eyes having laser beams coming out of them, even though your eyes are closed, it's good to look up a little bit because it, um, it activates a certain area in your brain. It also helps you to fight drowsiness. Um, what'll happen is if you're drowsy, you'll find your head starts to drop and your eyes will go down. Another interesting thing about your eyes going down, I, I tell clients, look, when you're meeting a new client, and you're going into a room, I don't want you looking at the floor. Um, one of the reasons for that is, you know, 
when you're growing up as a child, you talked about, you know, it's the first seven years, the brain waves are functioning in a more or less like a hypnotic suggestive thing. And it's just taking in information. Um, when you're being reprimanded or berated, where do you look? You look at the floor and your brain still knows the meaning of that, you know? So, mm. you know, there was tests that were done that, to see like, well, if, if the, um, the way you think impacts how your body feels, does how the how your body um, is positioned, like body motion, like um, does that affect the hormones that your brain puts out? And the answer is yes. So if you if you assume a position, in other words, if you assume the position of confidence, regardless of how you might be feeling in the moment, if you assume that position, the brain begins to release testosterone, lower cholesterol or cortisol, um, and you know testosterone is like in confidence and you know there's a um there's a, a value to it and and so your body will react in a way that it would if you were feeling confident and it will make you feel confident so that's why i'm saying pay attention to how you're feeling but how do you do that well if we get back to the meditation you know most as i said earlier most people aren't really aware of what they're doing and what they're thinking so that's what meditation does and you're right i think it's important to turn your um to turn yourself off to give yourself permission like, you know, sometimes you just got to let your mind go because otherwise you're like pulling the reins on the horses all the time and it gets tiring. So I, you know, sometimes I'll take a walk and I'll just tell myself I'm giving my mind permission to just chatter away. And um, but I'm giving it permission to I'm not it's not telling me it's going to do that. I'm giving it permission to. So with the meditation, as I said, you can um, look up slightly, close your eyes, relax, um, take some some slow, deep breaths. And as you exhale, let do a body scan. You know, most people, myself included, when they get tense, their shoulders come up. They're, you know, they it's a protective position because um it's a fight or flight position. So when you exhale, let your let your shoulders drop and actually feel that. And then begin to either watch your body breathe or say a short phrase like I am still. Um and the reason you do that is to give your mind one task. You want it to have one task because you need a point of relativity to notice if it's not staying on task. If you tell it to think about what you need at the grocery store, well, that's not going to work. So you um, you tell it to uh, uh, I, I just want I want you to just pay attention to your your um, body breathing. And what happens is in a very short period of time, your your um, your mind says, you know, this is really boring. I don't need to you know, you've got this. I'm going to go solve some problem. The report we have I got to get done or this conference I got to go to, whatever. And it takes off and you go with it because that's what you do all day long. And then there's the moment of juice is when you wake up and you realize that you're not paying attention to your beating and you're thinking about a conversation you're going to have later in the day or whatever it is. That's where everything happens, John, because that's when you leave, stop being thought and you become the thinker. That's when you anchor with the observer and it's in that moment. And so it's ironic that people, when they practice meditation, they judge themselves and they say, you know, I'm not good at it because I'm constantly chasing my mind. Well, if you're chasing your mind, you're noticing what your mind is doing. So you are actually doing very well, you know, when you do that and you have to let go of this isn't a, a contest that you're in where you have to get to where you have nothing but your breathing. That's all, you know, because you're never going to be there. The guys in Tibet that are doing it, you know, seven hours a day, they're still dealing with that. It's just the way the mind works. And so you stop judging and you go, I'm in the practice of doing this. And if you do that and you could, if you didn't want to use 
the breath, you could just say the, the simple phrases I said. If you do that for 10 minutes a day, I guarantee you, you will not believe how it changes your mind because all these things that are happening out here begin to lose their power. Mm -hmm. You begin to notice the stuff and then you have the opportunity to craft a different reaction to certain situations. And we'll call that the difference between a reaction and a response. You know, when 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 an ambulance pulls up, they call them first responders, not first reactors. You know, like, well, why is that? Because a response has intention, conscious decision making beforehand. It, it, it knows this is what we're going to do. When we come up on the scene, this is what we're going to do. And that's where you want to be. You want to know this situation triggers me. So what is my best behavior in this to be who I want in that situation? As I said earlier, if you don't know that beforehand, you're not going to figure it out when you get into the emotional throes of the habit because it's just too strong. So you have to have that. That's a reaction. Like the, the CEO, I said, when I just you know barked at him, he had a reaction. He didn't have a response. And so we want to be the responders. A response is deliberate. A reaction is not. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. I note the time, Tom, this has been a fascinating conversation. I would love to continue to pick your brain, but I also need to let you go here in just a few minutes. Um, as we wrap things up, perhaps you can close us off uh, by just sharing a little bit of of more what this can be, how this can be utilized within an organizational context. So if I'm a leader, and I want, you know, to personally practice more mindfulness, and I want uh, members of my team to do so as well, you know, what are some of the, the ways that I can promote that, encourage that um, to, to drive, you know, the, the positive outcomes? Well, I think it's important that, and I do work um, with teams in corporations. And one of the things that, you know, that we do is we have a plan, like we, with each person, uh, whatever their role is in the company, we figure out, well, where are your weaknesses? Like, you know, what situations do you have? How do you react to them? And we actually write we write down like, OK, when this happens, this is what you're going to do. And I want you to, you know, I want you to sit in a chair, close your eyes and do it because, you know, they've done studies way back into the 70s with athletes that the brain doesn't differentiate between the physicality of the, the response and the response in the brain. As far as the brains go, it's happening. The same hormones are released and everything. So you can actually get practice at dealing with difficult situations. Um and you can get repetitions in, even if you're not in the situation, because otherwise, the only way you change a habit of behavior is when the habit shows up. You know, so right. you're in this this place like if you've got a diff if there's certain situations where you don't do well, then those you have to wait for that situation to come up so that you can practice working against it. And but that isn't the truth. That's the point I'm making is that you can. I think it's very important that people take this aside and say, like, um, they have to have an idea. Like I say, ask yourself if there's a situation that either you're not very well focused or a situation where you get intimidated or, um, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever it is. Ask yourself, you got to have a target. If I could be whoever I wanted in that moment when that happens, what does that look like? Who is that? And write it down. You have to, if you write something down, don't just think about it in your head because there is no, that's a very abstract area. You have to have total clarity in order to write something out, to articulate it on paper. Write it out so that you have a very firm idea of this is this is who I want to be in the situation that I feel that I'm weak at. And then mm -hmm. then create your procedure. When this happens, you know, when I notice it, my rescue mantra is this. And then when 
after I stop the I stop the inertia of the thing, then I'm going to move to this, to this, to this. And then afterwards, there's a thing in piloting called um, aviate, navigate, and communicate. And the reason they say that is aviate, and it's very, you can use this in, in business. Aviate is fly the airplane first. What happens is if there's a problem, people get distracted by, well, what's causing the problem? And they forget to fly the airplane and the airplane gets into a, a dangerous attitude and many times they're killed. So the very first thing you want is an aviate. Like, you know, how am I going to handle this situation? Who do I want to be? You got to have that. Um, navigate is what action am I going to take that it's going to take me to someplace safe. Like, what is that? You know, where can I? I'm looking around. Where can I put this airplane down that is my safest path from here? So, what is your safest path from this moment? That's the navigate. Communication is in the aviation part, in the airplane part, is you don't have to communicate with anybody and tell them, hey, I'm going down. That's the last thing you think about because that really has nothing to do with saving your life. In business, communicating to me is debriefing. That's when after the cycle is done, you debrief yourself. What worked? What didn't work? What could be improved? Okay. And it's just this, in the practicing mind, there's a thing I call do, observe, correct, doc. And that's where we should be in this cycle of just this non-judgmental, total equanimity refinement. You know, look at what you did. That's the execution. Then observe how the execution unfolds and then make your corrections. Just like a basketball player shooting foul shots. He shoots the shot. That's the do. He observes the ball flight. It's it's in the hoop. It's off the backboard. It's left or right. Then he makes the correction. And there's no judgment. Judgment has nothing to do. All judgment does is erode performance. You know, you get mad at yourself. I should have done this. I can't believe I've tried this 10 times. I should be better at all that. That. That conversation and self-talk has is not going to make you perform better. It's just going to erode it. So non-judgment is very is um is very important. Yeah, very well said, Tom. Uh, as we close things out for today, I just wanted to give you a moment to share with the audience how they can connect with you, find out more about your work, where they can find your books. Uh, the, the best thing is, you know, I do have a website, tomsterner.com, uh, and you anybody can email me at tom, tom at tomsterner.com. I read all my re emails and I respond to them. So uh, anybody that wants to get in touch with me for any reason, whether it's a speaking thing or working with their company or them individually, that's how you would do it. Wonderful. Thank you, Tom, again. It's been a pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Tom can do for you, check out his books. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We hope you stay healthy and safe, and please join us again soon.